Psalm 31, 11 through 13 says this, Because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors, and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I have been forgotten like one who is dead. I have become like a broken vessel. For I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side, as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. Psalm 51, 1 through 4 says this, to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning. Happy Fourth of July weekend. Hopefully you guys are enjoying yourselves and a long holiday weekend. My name is Court. I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and I want to say uh, thanks so much for joining us. If it's your first time, we're glad that you're here with us. We're glad that you made us a part of your week, and uh, we'd love for you to get connected. Um, one of the ways you can do that, just let us know that you're here. Make yourself known. There should be uh, some connect cards in the seat backs in front of you. Uh, if they're not right in front of you, maybe they're down the row, you can reach over someone. Hopefully, they will not find that awkward and just uh, start filling that out and let us know that you're here. Uh, this morning, we're going to continue our series on the Psalms and the Proverbs talking about uh, emotions. And, and this morning, we're going to talk about the emotion of contempt. So if you're taking notes, you can put that at the top. We're going to talk about contempt. Now, briefly, I wanted to take a little bit of time to describe or define what contempt is, uh, because it's not necessarily a word that we often use uh, in our everyday vernacular, everyday vocabulary. So um, what is contempt? This is the Webster's uh, Dictionary definition of contempt, and then I'll, I'll kind of give you some illustrations, examples. It says this, contempt is the feeling that a person or a, a thing is beneath consideration, worthless, or deserving of scorn. I'll read that again. Uh, contempt is the feeling that a person or a thing is beneath consideration, worthless, or deserving of scorn. So whether you can define in your life you exhibiting or experiencing that, I think we all have experienced or engaged in contempt uh, at one time or another. Here's some questions to maybe help you feel that out. Have you ever been mocked or taunted in your life? If you have siblings, then the answer is yes, right? You ever, you ever had those moments where, where you experience the feeling of degradation from somebody else, right? A lot of times this starts happening from a very young age in school. You either see that or on the flip side, have you ever mocked or taunted or been a part of the degradation of another, right? Uh, playgrounds are, are like fodder for this, okay? You ever, if you ever go watch uh, just young children on how they play on a playground, yesterday, uh, we were at my, my brother's house, and he had, he had got one of these big blow-up slides that they, they pour water on them, and at the bottom, there's like a pool of water. You guys know what I'm talking about? It's like an air thing. It's got a sprinkler. The bottom just gets so nasty. It's like a pool of muddy nasty, and the kids slide down it, and they get, they get into that water. Well, there's just so many kids, lots of toddlers. My son's in there, and they're sliding down. They're sliding down right on top of each other. You keep telling them to try to take turns. You know how that works doesn't work all that well. You're like, don't go yet. You wait. No, you wait. It's like six of them going down at once, right? And so they, they, you know, my son's hitting people. Everybody's hitting people. Well, my son thinks it's a good idea because the hose is in the bottom. He wants to start spraying people with the hoses they come down. 
So he grabs the hose and he starts to, he turns around to spray and here comes three kids and he just kicks them right in the mouth. Boom, I see him go down. I'm like, let's see how he responds. And he, he kind of like touches his, his like, like this and looks at his hand. There's a little bit of blood on it. And he looks up at me and then this little kid comes down. He's a family member of mine. I won't tell you who. He comes down, looks at my son and says, well, that's what you get. And then jumps out, <laughs> right? Now, that's harmless, right? Or at least you feel like it's harmless. Unless you're the one who just got kicked in the mouth. And then it, just to add to the shame, like, well, that's what you get, dummy. You know, and you kind of walk away. And, and that's really what, what I mean by playgrounds being kind of the fodder for this, right? It's like when we're young, it's, uh, we have this kind of pecking order that we're all trying to figure out. And so you're just kind of leveraging to uh, see who's going to get atop the pecking order. You're trying to make sure that you don't find yourself too uh, too low. Some of us, maybe we don't want to be too high. That's too much expectation. So if we could just file in right at the middle, that would be great. And we use contempt as a way to kind of control and exhibit power over other people. Um, we experience the contempt of others when we're isolated by their words or by their actions. Think about that for a second. We experience the contempt of others when we're isolated by their words or their actions. So we, we suffer their rejection, we suffer their alienation, uh, their harassment, or their humiliation. Um, this is when, when people will say something or do something to put you on one side of the room and we're all over here. Does that make sense? Some of you experience this. It's whenever you have a, girls, you have a group of, of friends that are, uh, y'all are all together, y'all are all having fun, and then all of the girls start texting and it's obvious they're texting one another and giggling, but you're not in the text thread and you're together. That's a form of contempt, okay? Isolate you over there. There's us over here. Then you call them out and they're like, are, are you guys texting each other? And they make you feel like the bad one. Like, oh my gosh, you're so insecure. There's another word that isolates you, pushes you over here, we're over here. You're on your own. You're insecure. You're freaking out. Push you over there, we're over here. I can't help but think of uh, tons of teenage movies that kind of bear out this theme. Maybe a very popular one like Mean Girls. You guys remember Mean Girls? <laughs> yes, hopefully I'm not the only one because that's odd. <laughs> okay, <laughs> please don't leave me out here. That's another form of contempt. Tell me yes. Okay, thank you. <laughs> the whole theme of the movie, right, is this girl who is both has been on one side of contempt where she is kind of alienated as a quote-unquote nerdy girl who has odd and weird and her parents go on safaris and she just doesn't seem to fit in and so she feels isolated and then her getting in with this in crowd and having to juxt having to wrestle with should I uh, should I be kind to these people that I used to find myself in cahoots with or am I now in this new group and she finds herself kind of forming into uh, more of the contemptuous crowd which is I guess uh, personified with Rachel McAdams right the the mean girl and how she just, she holds everyone in contempt, even her friends, the ones that are her friends, right? And the Bible has a lot to say about contempt because contempt is not just a social issue, it's a theological issue, right? What is contempt at the bedrock? Contempt is an assault against the glory that God intends for his children to bear. I'll say that again. Contempt is an assault against the glory that God intends for his children to bear. What do I mean by that? There's a doctrine in scripture called the Imago Dei, that you and I, no matter where you come from, no matter your background, no matter your social, uh, socioeconomic status, your race, or your gender, that we are image bearers of God. It's at the very heart of what it means to be a Bible-believing Christian is that in Genesis, the Bible starts with, God created them in his image, male and female, he created them. 
all people were created in the image of God to bear the image of God and therefore to bear the glory of God. And when we operate in contempt, what we're doing is looking at an image bearer and we're saying they do not bear that glory, that image, and therefore are unworthy of my respect, love, admiration, affection, whatever it may be. And so it's an assault on the glory of God that resides in another human being. And here's the thing, not only that, but it also has a way of affecting us when you're the recipient of contempt. Contempt has a way of paralyzing us, that you don't feel wanted or worthy. It's an attempt of the other person to exercise control or power over you. We want people to feel inferior to us. We want to hold leverage over them and therefore we hold them in contempt with our words or with our actions. And so because contempt is not just an attack on a social situation, it's also an attack on the goodness of God, basically looking at another and saying, hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna isolate you and God won't save you. God's not gonna help you. Where's God at in this picture, right? We need to ask ourselves, where are the forms of contempt in our own life? What function do we think contempt serves? Because we haven't even gotten into some of our most deep and intimate relationships, how contempt finds its way into our marriages. It finds its way into our parenting. Like the book of Ephesians, Paul tells uh, the Ephesian church, fathers, don't provoke your children. What is he talking about? He's talking about the temptation, dads, to hold your kids in contempt to treat them as inferior in such a way that provokes them to anger, provokes them to try to prove themselves, right? So contempt finds its way into the most intimate of relationships. So I wanna talk about a few things. What, what are its forms? What are its functions? What do we think contempt will do for us? Number two, is there such a thing as holy contempt? Uh, what, what does God say about that? And then lastly, number three, how does the gospel both free us from contempt and lead us to engage with it? How does the gospel both free us from contempt and lead us to engage with it? So if you will, bow your heads. Let me pray for us. Ask the Holy Spirit to help us. Father, um, I want to start by confessing to you that as I prepared this sermon, it's a reminder that I am simultaneously a perpetrator of contempt and a victim of it over the course of my life. And I think the same is true of those under the sound of my voice. And so, Lord, if, if you would give us the grace, help us to repent of the areas where we've perpetrated or we've looked at other people in disregard. We've counted as others as unworthy of our consideration, our care, our love. Forgive us, God, when we've insulted you by insulting them we're out of fear or insecurity or, or a number of different things, we've just, we've missed the mark. And so would you forgive us, God? And, and now would you, would you highlight those things for those of us who are really struggling to see that? Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you prick our hearts of flesh and not allow it to be a heart of stone? Would you help us to feel and to sense the weight here so that, my God, you could also free us from it? We trust you, Lord. We look to your word. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so what are the forms of contempt? I'm gonna, I'm gonna name uh, three and then just put a pin in it because next week uh, when we talk through the Proverbs, I really wanna start fleshing these three out. But I'm gonna, I'm gonna name three that I think are um, maybe most prevalent. The first one is gossip as a form of contempt. Gossip as a form of contempt. So what do I mean? When we alienate, isolate, humiliate, and dehumanize others, 
by taking the place of narrator in their personal story and try to form a coalition to hear us and hear us out. Does this make sense? That's what gossip ultimately is. It's whenever we take someone else's story, we come and try to build a coalition to hear our part of that story by taking the form of narrator and we say, did you hear about so-and-so in their marriage? And then we begin to tell. Now, how is that a form of contempt? We don't consider for their story to be worthy of them telling it. We don't consider even for a moment that if we were to wait and hear their story, that it might actually change our perspective. (laughs) It's okay. Yes. That's how I feel sometimes. That's why I'm giving giving them a moment. And so ultimately, we humiliate them by taking the place of maker in their lives. We feel that we can author their story. We feel that we can uh, shine light on them. And then maybe the most obvious point of gossip that makes us engage with contempt is that we want to make ourselves uh, higher. And in order to do that, we step on other people's shoulders. We want to make ourselves look better. So our marriage looks better when it's juxtaposed against someone else's marriage that we're gossiping about, right? Our performance looks better at work when we juxtapose it against someone else's performance that's poor, Our role as a husband looks better whenever we talk poorly about another man and how he's not engaging as a husband. I can go on and on and on and on and go. But ultimately what we want is for others to be inferior to us so that we can be superior to them. Boasting as a form of contempt is the second one. This is very simple. When we lift ourselves up, we are inevitably trying to put everybody else in their rightful place or at least their perceived rightful place, right? Boasting is standing in a room and saying, we're all at uneven par here, and I feel like I need to go ahead and get, my, get to my throne quickly. So how can I tell a story that tells everybody else where they are in relation to me? It might look like this. You're, to, you're all having a, a nice dinner. Someone's telling you about their vacation. They tell you about their vacation, how awesome it was. It was exciting. They went to fill in the blank. Cancun. It was great. It's awesome. Went to an all-inclusive resort. Everything was great. So much food. I feel fat. Telling the story, and then someone else comes in and goes, oh, Cancun, yeah, I've been there seven times. We went to, you fill in the blank, Fiji. Now, what just happened there? Now, this can happen without you even knowing it. I found myself doing this not knowing that I'm doing it. It happens so quickly. What happens is their story is here. Now, let me trump that story and push it down so that you now feel inferior to where I've been. Oh, Cancun, yeah, that was fun when we went seven times too. Oh, okay. Yeah, we go to Cancun regularly. In fact, we're just too good for Cancun now right? This happens. We're going to go on a cruise. We're so excited. It's our very first cruise. Yeah, we used to cruise. It's just not our thing anymore. After the 10th one, it loses its luster. Oh, good. Get a new car. Man, look at my new car. Isn't it beautiful? Like, oh yeah, I traded my car and it was just like that. I traded it in though. I had to upgrade. Oh, right? It happens so quickly. What's really happening? Everybody needs to be put in their place so that you could take your rightful place above them. And it could be in a crowd or it could be one-on-one, but ultimately it's holding your brother or your sister in contempt. It can be with their possessions. It can be with their talents. It could even just be with their personhood. How they look, how they act, how they feel. When we diminish what they're saying, we ultimately dehumanize them. So we hold them in contempt whether we know we're doing it or not. And then lastly, blame shifting as a form of contempt. Now this one's something new as I studied and I realized it's pretty insightful, but I never considered it to be a form of contempt. This is when our sin is too much for us to bear, so we blame shift onto others, and when we do it, we diminish their value. 
we diminish their personhood. The very first place that you see this is in the first three chapters of Genesis when Adam does this with his wife, right? You guys know the story. I'm not gonna go into it too, into detail, but obviously sin enters the world through Adam and Eve, both partaking of the fruit of the tree. God comes to Adam as the head of the household and calls him on his sin. Adam, where are you? Why have you allowed this to happen? And Adam's answer to God is, it's the woman that you gave me. Men, just look straight ahead, okay? When we sin and we say it's her issue, and if you, God, now notice this, this is what's happening. Really, he's blaming God, but he's trying to curb that edge by saying, if you hadn't given me her, I mean, she's totally, what he, what he said at first in, in Genesis 2 was, wow, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Give it one chapter, and he says, my gosh, this woman you gave me. If you're married, then you know how quickly does that turn, Right? Wedding to honeymoon sometimes, that's how fast. Blame shifting. So he dehumanizes Eve. She's the problem. And if it weren't for her, everything would have been fine, God. Now, ladies, Eve, similarly, when God goes to her and says, what happened? She doesn't say, it's me, it's on me, I sinned. She says, it's the snake. So now it's the serpent, which he played a part, right, very clearly, However, she says, if it weren't for him, I would have never done this. So she blame shifts too. And blame shifting has this way of trying to preserve what your perceived value is by shirking off all of your sinful, broken, messy tendencies and putting them on other people, right? You guys have experienced this. It could be your coworker. Y'all are working on a project. Things go wrong. And slowly you start noticing your coworker alienating himself from the group. But what is he really doing? He's trying to depart from the shame of this group because he knows this project's not going well. I gotta make sure that my boss knows I'm not a part of this group. Y'all ever been a part of a team that's a losing team and you notice some of the star players stop playing, stop coming to practice, stop trying? And the reason for this is so that later on they go, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't really even try and so. This is a way that we could try to preserve whatever little sense of self-image that we have and in doing so, what we're doing is diminishing everybody else's, right? Yeah, well, I wasn't really trying. It's because look who I'm playing with. You could see this even in sports today. Professional athletes will do this. Well, I mean, look at the cast of characters around me. They're jokes. That's so they can continue to feel superior. Now, now, why do we do these things? So why do we gossip? Why do we boast? Why do we engage with blame shifting? I think there's two primary functions that we see that contempt will serve for us. They don't actually give us what... Contempt never gives us what it promises, and yet we still believe that these two things will be the result of our contempt. The first is contempt functions as self-preservation. We hold others in contempt to keep them from getting too close so that they can hurt us, or we hold others in contempt to keep our sense of self-identity. That's self-preservation. Or, number two, contempt functions as self-exaltation. We can only be strong, pretty, powerful, talented, etc. if others aren't as strong, pretty, powerful, and talented around us, right? This is the fallacy of there's not enough room in this town for the both of us. You ever heard that? It's like old Western talk. We carry that into many social circles that we're in. It's, sometimes we even carry it into the church. I have to be better than others. There's not enough room for the best to be two of us. Therefore, I can't celebrate the good of others. I can't celebrate the wins of others. It's only me getting celebrated that is important. Therefore, I must hold others in derision. I must hold others in contempt. It's a crafty means to gain power over others too. 
Because when you hold other people in contempt, shame is such a powerful emotion that they pretty much will start trying to get back in good graces with you because it feels so bad to be isolated, doesn't it? You ever been on the other, the other side of contempt? And you don't know why, because you don't even like the mean girls, but you kind of want them to like you. <laughs> like you hate them, but being on this side is brutal. So you want to do something that they might pretend to like you. And you might even compromise some of your own character values. And you can see these illustrated throughout the whole Bible, right? Adam's the blame shifter, but Joseph is the boaster, right? And you might not see Joseph as a boaster, but can we agree that if you show up to your brother and say, hey, I had a dream last night. You guys know what I'm talking about, where I'm going. He's got 11 brothers. He's the youngest. He goes, guys, I had a dream last night. Here's what the dream was. I was given this coat in front of all of you guys. Dad got me a gift. And it was a beautiful coat, coat of many colors. You guys didn't get one. <laughs> imagine Reuben? Reuben's like, what did I get? Don't remember. Didn't even see your face. Then he says, and then all of you guys started bowing down to me. Even dad was bowing down to me in my dream. Could you imagine what all the older brothers are doing? Like, you're a joke, right? Like, if, you, if your friends did that to you, you, you know, you got a guy that you're uh, carpooling to work with. He's like, dude, had a dream about you last night. It was crazy. First of all, he'd be like, whoa, don't dream about me. Second of all, he says, it's crazy, but our boss called us in, gave me a promotion. You started singing my praises, bowed down and worshiped me. It was nuts. You'd be like, dude, we're not friends anymore, right? We don't see Joseph as a boaster, and yet he is a boaster. Another story, Absalom is the gossip. And I can go on and on throughout the Old Testament on how we find contempt riddled throughout. But here's the most important key. We have to see ourselves not just as victims of contempt, but perpetrators of contempt. Because David is both. David is both. I want to read Psalm 33, and then I want to read Psalm 51. I want to talk about how he's a, both a perpetrator and he's a victim of contempt. Psalm 33, verses 11 through 13. This is David exhibiting and communicating his victimhood. Verse 11, Psalm 31. Because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach especially to my neighbors. That's the worst, right? It's like people hate you. It's tough. When your neighbor hates you, you see them every day. Kids are playing out in the backyard. Oh, man, got to talk to them. You mow your lawn. You're worried if you're going to go over a little bit on their lawn or if you're not going to go far enough. It's brutal. An object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I've been forgotten like one who is dead. I've become like a broken vessel. For I hear the whispering of many, tear on every side as they scheme together against me as they plot to take my life. David was a victim of contempt and the height of his victimhood was by the perpetrator Saul, right? Saul held David in such disregard that he chased him around for years and years and years and years and he gossiped about him and he tried to boast his way back into the kingship, back into the favor and curry favor with Israel. He blame shifted all of his problems on David rather than his own sin. Saul was the perpetrator of perpetrators against David for contempt. But lest you feel really sorry for David and not know that he's a human being and a sinful human being at that, remember that David too conducted himself in the sin of contempt against another. If you turn to Psalm 51, I'm gonna read the first four verses and then give you a little background. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when what? When Nathan the prophet went into him. Now, this is key, okay? 
Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgments. It seems like David is pretty broken here. What happened? Now, for those of you who don't know the story, it's one of the highlights of the Old Testament. Really, it's a low light. (laughs) David, when the kings are supposed to go out to war, finds himself back at home sitting on his couch. He goes up to the attic and he sees a woman bathing and he has attraction to her. And because he's the king and because he's powerful and because now Saul's out of the picture, he says, I want that woman to be brought into the palace. He lays with this woman, she gets pregnant, he freaks out and says, you know what I need to do? I need to fix this. The way to fix it is for her husband, whose name is Uriah, who is one of the leaders of an army, who is a man who's devoted to David and devoted to God. He says, I need to make sure that this man dies and it looks like an accident. And so what does he do? He writes a letter, he gives it to Joab. He says, Joab, or he gives it to one of his servants, says, hand this to Joab at the front lines. Joab opens the letter, he reads it. Oh, Uriah, Uh, David says you need to come back home. So David rethinks it and says, okay, here's what I'll do. I'll get Uriah to go into his wife. And then, oh, she's pregnant. And then everybody's like, oh, Uriah came home for one night. They won't really, they might not mince the dates up, you know, back then. No big deal. Uriah is such an honorable man, he sleeps on the front porch. He won't even go into his wife. David says, why won't you go into your wife? I brought you home. I, I did good things to you. I even liquored you up some. He says, I can't while my men are on the battlefield, just upping the ante on his integrity. So then he actually does write the letter to say, send Uriah to the front lines, and when the the fighting is most fierce, pull all the men back and leave him by himself. Isolate him. He hands the letter, check this out, to Uriah, and Uriah goes unwittingly to the general with his own death sentence. Doesn't even know. If there's any other form of contempt that's higher, I don't know what it is, friends. He treats him like a maggot and he is the most, one of the most integral men in all of his army. So then Nathan the prophet comes in and that's where we get Psalm 51. Nathan the prophet comes in and he tells this story. It's real juicy. I mean, he just tees it up and David falls hook, line and sinker right into it. Because everything worked out, right? Uriah dies. Joab says, hey, the deed is done. You think it's over. Whoo, I hid my sin. No big deal. Bathsheba, now David gets to look like the hero. Come in and I'll take you, you poor widow. You'll be my wife. He gets to be, she gets to be the queen now or one of the many queens. And he looks like the hero. Except Nathan comes in and says, uh, I was talking with God and I heard a story. David says, tell me the story. He says, there was a man, a rich man who came into a field. He said, and he, he was in need of uh, sacrifice. And so rather than taking one of his many sheep, he instead looked and he took a poor man's sheep, the only the only sheep that this poor man had and he sacrificed it and he just held this man he had no pity on this poor man and he left the poor man with nothing David says who is that man we will kill him today and Nathan the prophet wastes no time and says you're the man you're the man and this is where we get Psalm 51 where David says I've sinned He's called out on his contempt. He's not only the man who suffered contempt at the hands of Saul. David is the man who exhibited the utmost contempt against another good man. And what's the lesson that we hear from the Psalms? The lesson is this. You and I are the same way. 
And perhaps we have tendencies to only see ourselves in one of two circumstances, but it's of utmost importance that we see we're not only victims, we're perpetrators. We're not only perpetrators, we're victims. You have been the victim of contempt of others. You have been the perpetrator, and we must acknowledge it. But that brings us to a second question. Every time we've talked about emotions, we've talked about it in relation to, is there such a thing as a holy type of this emotion? And what we find in the Bible is that not all contempt is evil, that God actually has contempt for evil itself. Check out some of these verses about how God interacts with evil. Because can we agree, God has a, has a vested interest in justice and therefore he wants to do away with all evil, right? That's a good thing. However, God's not just interested in doing away with the evil by pressing it out the back door. God seems to be all about humiliating evil. Let's read some of the uh, text. Psalm chapter two, verse number four says this. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. This is talking particularly about those who think they can come against the Lord. It says that God laughs at them. You think about that? Isn't God kind of intense? He sits on a throne and he laughs at them when they try to attack him. He holds them in derision. He holds them in disregard. How about this one? Psalm 37, verses 12 through 13. The wicked plot against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him, but the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. The Lord laughs at the wicked because he sees that his day is coming. Okay, now I'm gonna use this last one. If we have kids, forgive me. This is in the Bible. I'm just gonna read it. Nahum chapter three, verses five through seven. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. I will lift up your skirt over your face and I will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. All who look at you will shrink from you and say, wasted is Nineveh, who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? God is intensely committed to not just the destruction of evil, but the outright public humiliation of it. Now, we see that God's disgusted at this, but we need to ensure that we don't think that God is unjustly disgusted at evil. Like, there's some merit to not only wanting to expose the crime, but to expose the criminal, right? Like, that's important. We even do that in our society, don't we? We publicly put people on trial. You ever thought about that? Why do we publicly put people on trial? Well, it's, it's tough. It's, a, it's really a, it's a fine line, isn't it? Because what if they're innocent? They're, they're Character's still marred, right? But, but here's what the idea was, and I think it's been the idea for many, many years, is that when people are guilty publicly, everyone needs to see this is criminal, this is unjust, and therefore this should be avoided. And that's what God's intending on doing here. That he doesn't just sit back and say, I'm going to take a public crime and punish it privately. He says, no, I'm gonna take a public crime and I'm gonna punish it publicly. Or how about this? When a man tries to do something privately, Let's think about some awful crimes that you see all the time in the news. When a man may do something privately against a woman, what does God say? He's gonna publicly shame that man because it's right to do so. Because he thought that he might get away with that. Like David thought that he could privately put Uriah to death and God says that's not how it works. God is intent upon ensuring that sin and the perpetrators of sin are viewed as not just bad things, but as horrendous things, as treasonous things. Now look at verse number four, as David considers his own sin. Now this is key, because if, if we're not careful, we're just gonna think that contempt is a horizontal issue. 
We're going to think that contempt is how we sin against each other. But listen to what David says here in verse 4. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. David says, before I ever held Uriah in contempt, God, I held you in contempt. I tried to be God. I tried to be you. That's what he says here. I sinned against you, Lord, when I sinned against Uriah. And even before that, when I looked upon Bathsheba, I sinned against you. See, we not only need to long for God's sense of justice and righteousness, but we have to see ourselves first as not just having contempt for each other, but we have contempt for God. We don't think that his way is best. We don't think that he has the best interest of us and others at heart. We think that we could do it better. We think that we could sit on his throne. We think that we can judge, play God. And that's the ultimate sin of contempt. Now, why do I think that it's important to embrace this? Is because this embracing of sinning against God by holding him in contempt is a prelude to the mercy of God. Lastly, how does the gospel shift and change? How does it free us from contempt and how does it allow us to engage with it? Matthew chapter 27, let's go to the scene at the cross. Matthew 27, if you have your Bibles, you could turn there, uh, verses 27 through 31. This is Jesus on the cross. It says, then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters. They gathered the whole battalion before him and they stripped him. They put a scarlet robe on him and twisting a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and they put in his right hand, kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, hail the king of the Jews. They spit on him, they took the reed and they struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and they put his own clothes on him and they led him away to crucify him. Verse 39. And those who passed by derided him. This is just random people passing by the cross. Wagging their heads saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. This is as Jesus is nailed to the cross. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes, with the elders, they mocked him saying, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I'm the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. What's happening here? Well, on one hand, as you read that, doesn't it, it brings a sense of sadness to your heart. The only righteous man to ever live had to bear that kind of mockery, right? But what's happening in this great reversal of the Bible? Jesus is bearing the mockery, humiliation, harassment, degradation of the human race that has held him in contempt since the very beginning. And rather than reacting, he is silently receiving all of the scorn. Now, at first, you could say, wow, what restraint from Christ? It is restraint, but it's so much more than that. Because when we think about how the Father wants to not only do away with injustice, but the Father wants to publicly shame injustice, you see what's happening at the cross of Christ is God, the Father, is publicly humiliating evil by placing the mockery on his own son. 
He's allowing the mockery, the shame, the degradation, the calling of names, the spitting, the crown of thorns, the humiliation, the isolation, rather than to be put on you and me, he puts it on his own son. And Jesus, lest you think that he was doing this and he was a, you know, just having child abuse from his dad, Jesus said, I'm willing to receive this cup. And he said, I'll take it, and didn't even open his mouth as they said all sorts of evil things about him. And what you need to see here is it's almost every layer of society that's doing it to Jesus, isn't it? Like you start at the very bottom. The criminals next to him are mocking him. And you could continue to go up, right? Random people walking on the sides of the road. Regular everyday citizens. Roman soldiers who work for the military. And check this out. The chief priests, the scribes, the elders. Everyone has joined in to mock, deride, and make fun of, humiliate the son of God. And Jesus says, I will not only receive it, but the only words that I will utter is, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The mercy of Jesus disarms the contempt of the human heart. He doesn't fight back, doesn't defend himself. They say, come down from the cross. Can we all agree he could have? Right? Like, come down from the cross. Like, I don't know about you, but I'm, I was reading this thinking about myself. When someone dares me to do something from like a little age and, and tries to humiliate me, that presses me to do that thing. Anybody else? I don't know if it's a guy thing. Girls, I've seen, some, I've seen this happen with gals too, but something about saying, you can't do this and I know full well it's in my power to do it makes me want to do that thing so that I can deflect the shame on you. Jesus says, I'm not interested. He doesn't react, he doesn't show his power and glory, but instead he reveals his power and glory through restraint and mercy. He bears the contempt and then he moves to forgive them. And then later on, Paul the apostle, he shines light on this in Galatians chapter three, verse 13 by saying, Every, the, the Old Testament says, uh, everything that is nailed to a tree is cursed and Christ became a curse for us by being nailed to the cross. He received the contempt of the entire world and every bit of anger, wrath that the father had towards sin is poured out on the son. There's a line from one of my favorite hymns. It's called, uh, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. You guys are familiar with it. We sing it uh, sometimes. There's a line there that toward the end of the song that says, ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there. That, that the writer of the hymn is saying, when I read the story of the gospels and Jesus is being derided, I want to put myself in like John's shoes or like Mother Mary's shoes. But really, if I'm honest with my own heart, I, I find myself in the Roman soldier's shoes. I find myself in the chief priest's shoes. And it's my mocking voice my sin that nails him to the cross. Then, and only then, do you realize how deep the Father's love is for you. And that right there, where you stand, the God who held your very vocal cords together that allowed you to mock, he loved you, died for you, became a curse for you, was humiliated for you. And now because, for those of you who are in Christ this morning, because of what Christ has done, we not only get to 
reject unholy, sinful contempt in our lives. Because guess what? If you're in Christ, your station is secure, child of God. You don't have to prove that by holding others in derision. But you know what? You also get to join God by holding evil and contempt in the way you live your life. How do you do that? Here's a few thoughts before I pray. When your loved ones die, you get to scoff at evil for thinking that evil won because Christ gives hope of eternal life. When sickness racks your body, you can laugh at evil for thinking that your mortal body is your only future because you have a glorified body that is headed for you. When you struggle with sin, you can laugh at Satan who has no power to condemn you because Christ, the only one with the power to condemn you, has said, I condemn you not. This is what Paul says when he laughs in Romans 8 and says, who shall separate us from the love of God? No one. Lastly, when you fail, you can snicker at the enemy because we are more than our mere performance now. We are children of God. And so I want to encourage you, Christian, this morning, contempt has no power over you. In Christ, the power is yours over sin and Satan and death, and that can be celebrated. You are forgiven. You are loved by God. And in the face of your sin, God has laughed in joy over your salvation. That's what the Bible says, that God laughs at every sinner who is saved. He dances because evil loses at the hands of his son. If you're not in Christ, I want to offer you this. Just as Jesus was on the cross, there's a story about two thieves being crucified next to him. One thief looks at Jesus and says, why, if you really are the son of God, why don't you save all of us? And he mocks him. But the other thief looks at Jesus and says, I know you are who you said that you are. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And that choice is laid before us every day. We engage in contempt of the son of God or by his grace, we ask him, would you remember me when you come into your kingdom? Christ can free you. And I pray this morning that if you have not chosen to trust in Jesus, that you would consider it. That you would consider flinging yourself at the foot of the cross because he's a matchless savior. And I, I believe with all my heart, there's many people around you that would agree with that. <laughs> so if you'll stand to your feet, I wanna pray for you. Father, I'm under the conviction this morning that there are those under the sound of my voice who have been deeply hurt or wounded by the contempt of others. And so Jesus, would they find in you a merciful and sympathetic high priest? Jesus, you have felt what they have felt to the nth degree. And so I ask, would you meet them in their sorrow over what others have said about them, over what others have done to them? And would you heal their heart from the wounds of contempt? Father, I'm also convinced that there are some who are racked with guilt and condemnation over the contempt that they have exhibited to their spouse, how they have disregarded their covenant spouse, their loved ones, their children, and how they have exalted themselves above them in behavior and in speech. And so God, I ask, would you meet them there and remind them that while we were mocking you, you were asking for our forgiveness. Jesus, would you meet them with mercy that would disarm? And lastly, Father, for the person 
under the sound of my voice who has yet to experience the grace that I'm talking about, would you now mercifully renew their heart? Meet them in mercy as they call upon you. And even when we fumble around with our prayers, God, would you remind us that you are our Father that loves to hear from us. Bring life, God, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.